evening. It's good to be here and worship with you once again. I want to bring you greetings in Christ's name, desiring that He would be honored and glorified this evening. I want to talk, first of all, a bit about pride again, thinking of the verse there in Isaiah 66. I'm going to need to turn to that again. Isaiah 66, verse 2. God is speaking, and he says, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Again, painting the picture of someone that is willing to humble himself before God, that trembles at the word of God. It says that God is interested in that person. God wants to have an intimate relationship with them. To this man will I look, or I am totally in love, interested, and more about this person. That's what God is is saying there. And speaking for myself, pride is probably my worst enemy. It's the thing that pops up in so many areas in my life, and uh, it results in many other types of sins. They can pop in behind it, but the pride is kind of the root situation behind much of it. The other evening we talked about a haughty spirit, pride showing itself in that way in a person's life. Here's a definition of pride. People, for pride, people are either trying to exalt themselves at the expense of others or they are doing their utmost to protect themselves from others who would do so at their expense. So we either use our pride to exalt ourselves over other people or to keep people from, from uh, exalting themselves. We, we try to protect ourselves from people putting, pushing us down. Either way, it becomes a pride issue. Pride touches our lives in so many different ways that oftentimes we focus on one way and we say, well, I am not proud because I'm not proud in this one area. But my challenge or my idea in going over some of this is to help you understand that pride touches us in many different areas of our life. And falling under the assumption that I am free of pride because I have victory over in one area of my life tends to all a person into thinking that he's he's okay. He hasn't uh, doesn't have an issue with Friday anymore when he many times is not recognizing it in another area of his life. <clears throat> okay, we talked about the Holy Spirit. That is thinking of ourselves that we are better in some way than someone else and that we are... Um, we have this one great quality. Oftentimes it's, it's based on one thing about ourselves. And as we elevate ourselves above other, above other people, 
it gives us a sense of exhilaration. We're so happy that we are so smart or so gifted or so something in some area. And because you have that gift, then you compare yourself favorably to other people's weaknesses. Okay, that was the haughty spirit. Now, number two, another way that it manifests itself in a person's life is through what we call vanity. Now, we said the other evening that a haughty spirit finally arrives at a place where he does not care what other people think. That is the culmination of a haughty, haughty spirit. A vain person is very interested in what other people are thinking, and that is what they base their pride on, or their pride is based on the thoughts of other people. Vanity seeks the admiration of others. He craves the approval of others, longs to be recognized, and seeks applause. He may be the show-off, or he may be the one that, you know, always has the best of things, you know, because this or that is in style, uh, the way they dress, the way they comb their hair, perhaps, or, you know, it, it all has to do with vain expectations, how we view things as, as uh, far as other people, how other people's desires come through, and we think that we are pleasing other people by, by following this vanity. You could start with preachers, if you want. Do preachers preach because they, of what they think people want to hear? That's vanity. You can go into Ecclesiastes and read all about it, vanity of vanities. Um, or are we more concerned in preaching the truth and looking into God's word and talking about it even when we realize in our own lives we have faults and things that need to be taken care of and that, that God's word speaks to us as well. Does our desire to be liked supersede the need to preach the truth? But for any of us, the vehicles you drive, the clothes you wear, the houses you live in, does it show a vain nature? The things we buy, they all tell a story about our inward life. The thing about vanity that is so terrible is that it puts you in a prison. Vanity puts you in a prison of living our lives for the approval of others. And that's a sad place to be because most of us are so surrounded by people and they all have different ideas about how you should look. Uh, it reminds me of a story one time about a father and son who were bringing a donkey home from town. And first of all, I think the father rode the donkey and people met them and said, Oh, look at that older man riding the donkey and he's making his young son walk. So the father jumped off and he said, you, you ride. Young son rides. And they go a little ways and the people say, look at that. The young son is riding and he's making his elderly father walk. So they both got on the donkey. Then people said, look at that poor donkey having to carry those two people. So the man and his son tried to carry the donkey and then there's people who really thought they were strange. You know, it just... That, that story shows the futility of trying to please everybody. But that's what happens when we, we are filled with a, 
vain hope that the way people are looking at us will, will somehow be, they'll be impressed by things we do. The way we look, the car we drive, uh, the way we fix our house up, things like that. The, the reason it puts us into prison is that the person's contentment depends solely upon his approval rating. Somebody praises us, we're in this, this uh, condition. Somebody praises us, we are happy, we are fulfilled. We're satisfied with life because somebody finally recognized how much effort we're putting into pleasing other people, okay? But somebody frowns at us, and it may be something that they ate and not uh, about us necessarily, and we slump in disgust and depression and whatever because, oh my, we just didn't measure up that time. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, there's a verse that says, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? It's basically saying, don't let the opinions of other people bother you so much. Now, we need to, we need to be um, careful. We need to uh, take into account other people's opinions to some extent. But when that is our all-consuming thought in life, oh dear, we, we chase in so many different directions. So, we had a haughty spirit, then we have vanity, and by the way, any of you have a vanity in your house? That's oftentimes what it, uh, a bathroom cabinet is called, and it was specifically for a cabinet that women sat at to uh, make themselves beautiful, I guess. So, All right, number, the third way is that of self-protection. And this is probably the hardest for me to explain as it comes through in a pride situation. But it's, it's when we have a difficulty making ourselves vulnerable to other people. And maybe you might think of that as there being some other issues there. But basically it's pride that won't let us open up to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to be worthy of being able to keep a confidence. We need to be able to be willing to pray about something instead of gossip about it. But are we? Do we protect ourselves so carefully? Are we so afraid of being hurt that we won't let other people get anywhere close to us? We're very prickly. We can be hurt quite easily. We can be offended, and we, you know, that this is these are pride issues when. We have that nature. The slightest offense in that person's life will drive him to try to save himself from further hurt. And because of that, people tend to move away from that person because that person's kind of a prickly person to be around. And then the person is hurt because nobody talks to them. You see how that cycle goes on and on, and it just gets worse and worse. And it's, it's from our own, the, the, uh, the walls that we build around ourselves to protect ourselves from hurt. Many of us can think back to things that have happened in our life that hurt in relationships with other people. And you can begin to close yourself up 
when that happens. Or you can tell God about it and continue to find people that it's okay to be yourself with and to be able to open up to. So, those three things so far, a haughty spirit, vanity, and self-protection. A self-protective person is often very quiet and does not, you, you don't understand that nature until you have somehow inadvertently offended them. And then ugliness can spew out of them in a single burst that is awful sometimes. You didn't know that person had feelings that deep or that, uh, you know, and, and, and that ugly that that would come out and it surprises us it shocks us in Luke 12 verses 4 and 5 Jesus was talking to his disciples and he he warned them about being so protective that they were always uh, offended by people around them he said but I say unto you my friends be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So as we have feelings of, I, I want to protect myself. And so I'm going to close myself off from other people. Don't be afraid of other people. It's, it's easy to say. It's easy for me to stand up here and say, don't be afraid of other people. When you know we get into all sorts of situations and we wonder how how we can open up and just be ourselves and be, be friends with, with other people. But if a man would have friends, he must show himself friendly. And it, uh, it takes some effort on our part. We put, use our effort, and all of a sudden we find other people putting effort into it too. So let's, let's look into our hearts, make sure that pride is not an issue there that is keeping us from fulfilling our potential as we serve God and, and live for God. Okay, you can turn again to Luke chapter 15. We want to look again at that parable, looking at it in relation to what we call the prodigal son. We want to look at some of the steps that he took away from God and also, or his father, and the steps that he took in returning. The other night we talked about the loving father and how that his arms are always open wide. There's always forgiveness with him. And that's something we always need to remember as we, we consider our own sinfulness, our own undoneness, the carnal nature that's still there that need, we need to die to daily. Um, you know, too often in our lives we tend to compare ourselves with other people. You know, like that vanity type person. And we say, well, I am better than so-and-so. I don't do this and this and this, so that makes me pretty good. And we tend to 
elevate ourselves because of those assumptions. But God is challenging us in his word that we would compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for the New Testament um, picture of Christ that we have. It just thrills me to look at that and say, you know, here is a perfect example that I can follow. Yeah, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, and, and that was good too because people were able to see his example, but I still think that just, just the idea of looking at the life of Christ and seeing the path that he took and the way that he served people and his attitude towards the lowly and rejected and just looking at his life. As I compare that, all of a sudden my true condition is glaringly painful and I realize how hopelessly I fall short of the holiness that God would have us to be and to live. And when we look at ourselves and our sinful our sinful self, the guilt and shame that should consume us as we think about that, they're painful things to face. And guilt and shame is a delicate thing. It's hard to know how to handle sometimes because we sometimes have the tendency to let us let it take us in a wrong direction. God uses those things um, to draw us to him. But if we look at them in the wrong way, it can actually cause us to go away from him. But God, in, in his love and mercy to us, has provided things in our life to draw us to him and, and his mercy. We, we want to respond positively to the mercy of God. But before you can do that, you really have to get a sense of your own inability and your own unworthiness. And that there's nothing I can do to gain this. You know, there's people the world over that are sure that some way, somehow, they can work their way into salvation. Isn't there something I can do? What can I pay? What can I, what can I give? In this story about the prodigal son you see a repentant spirit, one that is sorry for sin that has been committed in his life. One thing that really stands out in his life is that he had a desire to be under authority, to be subject again to authority in his life. And there are people who take steps toward repentance. They say they want to get right with God. They say they want to have peace with God. And they repent to a certain degree, but they do not want to come under authority in their lives again. They say they want to be under God's authority, but the authority that God has set up through the church and through fellowship with the saints, they're not willing to be part of that. 
The prodigal son became lost when he claimed his rights, but he's found when he surrendered them. I'm not worthy anymore. Just let me be called a hired servant. The return to the father was a return to wisdom. But we also see in his life, I'm just going over some of these things and we'll get into it more deeply here in a little bit. You know, he, he was in that pig pen there and he came under conviction. I don't know if any of you have been facing that recently and you're struggling with that in your life. There's some area in your life that needs to be taken care of or you're thinking about becoming a Christian or whatever and, and God's spirit is convicting you. And conviction can lead you two different directions. Again, if if we look at conviction in the wrong way and we become so depressed over where we are and how sinful we are in our condition and, and somehow we come under the idea that I am too bad for God to pay any attention to. Conviction can actually lead to despair in some people's lives. Now that isn't what God intended for it to do in our hearts and lives. God wants you to know that the conviction is there to pull you to Him so that He can show you a better way. Because conviction can also lead you to true repentance and then to restoration to a proper relationship with God. So knowledge is important as we look at this thing of conviction and understanding where it leads. Let's look then at the uh, passage there in Luke 15. I'm still in Isaiah 66. So. Uh, let's begin reading verse 11. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of the hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Remember, he had more that he wanted to say. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. One thing you'll never hear the Heavenly Father say is that if you walk away from me, forget coming back. There is always a chance for restoration with the Heavenly Father. 
God is a loving Heavenly Father. He loves you so much you're free to walk out of the fellowship with him. But he wants you to come back. So, what is the first point that we want to look at this evening in steps away from God's blessing? First thing we see here is that the young son had a restless attitude. Restless attitude. Now you might say this is kind of a sermon for young people, and it is, but it's for us older people too. Restless. Never quite settled. Um, now, maybe you've made a change in the recent past. That doesn't mean you're a restless person. What troubles me is when there is a series of changes from one place to another or from, you know, ideas that jump around a lot and we'll try this, we'll try that, we'll try doing something else. The, the restless idea or attitude that permeates so much of our society today, um, I see that you don't have as much problem with that around here and we don't in our community where you have lots of churches close by. But I go into some communities that I'm familiar with. And if you're unhappy at this one place here, we'll go over we'll go down the road five miles and and go to this church. And maybe we'll go thirty or forty miles and we'll pass people coming from that community to come to our church and it's just a very strange situation. It, as I drive through their communities on a Sunday morning I think of the restless waves, this waves of people going in different directions, and they can't worship together. Just that restless attitude. And you, you look at this boy here. It just wasn't working out in his situation. It's no fun. The grass was greener somewhere else, but someone said the grass. Yes, the grass is greener somewhere else. Somewhere else, but you can't afford the water bill. To, to keep it that way. And when you get there, you'll find that, oh, it looks greener back home. All of us experience this probably at one time or another in our life. Sometimes over and over again, especially if we feed it. If we feed this attitude, we just continue to be restless. Never quite satisfied. Not knowing what to do uh, with that feeling, that attitude, and wondering how to take care of it. This boy said, if I can just have my part of the inheritance, how much fun would that be? Oh my. I can take care of this restless itch. I can go. I can go. I can go. I can go. So he demanded his inheritance and took off. And it doesn't just happen to young people. It can happen to married people. It can happen to even older people, grandparents, whatever, that get an urge to do something else because usually it's because they've been ticked off about something. They've um, had some issue happen in their life that they didn't think was quite right, so they become restless where they're at. 
Restlessness is the feeling we are missing out on the fun somewhere else or a, a better situation. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and watch what happened there with Adam and Eve where the serpent came and he said, the situation you're in isn't good enough. You're missing out on something here. Yea, hath God said that you shouldn't eat of this? Ah, he's pulling your leg. You're missing out. He doesn't want you to have the best. And Eve believed that. She believed there was something else that was better. And she, her unbelief was in God, that God wasn't really there for her good. Satan said, if God was so good, why is he making you miss the taste of that fruit on that tree? And it worked. There was a songwriter that wrote one of our hymns. He said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He knew that, that it takes God locking his heart up. He was asking God to do that with his heart and soul. He said, God, if you would just lock that up so that my desire, my the, the fact that I'm prone to wonder would be taken away. We need to recognize this restless attitude problem. Well, well let's back up and say this. When we have this restless attitude, sometimes we like to entertain it for a while. Because it's, it's interesting to think about all the possibilities that are out there. But I, I think we should shut it off way back then. When we entertain this idea of a restless attitude in our minds and allow it to ferment there, it's, it's something we need to resist like any other temptation. Think about this scenario, this story. Think about this story and all of the pain and suffering that this younger son would have missed out on if he had seen this attitude for how dangerous it was and gotten help or somehow stopped. But there was no stopping him. If he had resisted this attitude before he left home, how much pain and suffering he could have avoided. It's like a monster in a cage. It can roar. And we need to get away from that too, but it really can't do anything to you as long as it's in a cage. But this young man turned the monster loose and it took him down the road away from home. The next downward step, number two, is reckless living. You have this restless attitude back here. The next step is going to be reckless living because, well, this isn't satisfying me here. And that's, a, that's the, one of the terrible things about sin is that it never satisfies a person. We think that we'll be happy if we do this. So we do it. And we find that it is satisfying for a time. And then we find that we need something else or we need to... Do it a little bit more or, you know, it's like drugs and things like that. It's very addictive. 
this man's philosophy was that I'm tired of the rules of home. I'm going where there are no rules. I'm going to make the rules, my gold rules. And because I have gold, I've got friends. I don't think he really thought that one through because <clears throat> when the gold was gone, his friends were gone. And he, uh, he could buy things. He could go places. And he could live however he wanted to. And for a time, it seemed like he would pay no consequences for it. Finally, he was free. Back home, there had always been rules. His dad told him that there were some things were wrong and some things were right. Now he decided if it feels good, it's right. If it doesn't feel good, it's wrong. And we may never go to quite that extreme. But if you're on a path away from God because of a restless attitude, you're going to become more reckless in the life that you live. I have a sister that is... probably 59, and when she was age 18, she left the Lord Jesus, turned her back on that. And there have been times in her life that she has admitted to some of us that she wishes she could come back. But because of the reckless life that she has lived, she believes that that's impossible. And we've tried to tell her it's you know, not, that there will be people to help her, that, that, you know, that God, first of all, will help. But she sees that way back home is way too long. And actually, the last time that she said something like that was years and years ago. I don't know if she even thinks about that anymore. Reckless living. It's something that will catch up with you sooner or later. Sin is like a lure fishermen use to entice that big old bass. If you just throw a big bear hook in the water, no, no fish is going to eat that up. But if it looks pretty, shiny, resembles something yummy to eat, yeah, they're going to snap at it. And the, and the hook sets right away, right? Well, Satan doesn't do it quite that way. He likes to let you play with it for a, long, for a while, maybe even a long time, before suddenly the hook, that hook we had in the candy bar last night, it comes out to grab you. Because the third step in our walk away from God is a ruined life. You had a restless attitude, and you've got reckless living, and then you have a ruined life. Just recently, we had communion. I think we had communion in our church the same Sunday you had it here. And one of my fellow pastors stood up during our testimony time at the end, and he just said, you know, how thankful he was for the Christian life. And he said, even though we face troubles and trials, he said, I feel like I live a somewhat orderly life. Now, he would chuckle and say that, don't look at my desk or the inside of my van when I say that, because that part is not very orderly. But he said, just recently, he said, I, I heard two people that I knew from my school days that I went to school with who both of them say their life is such a mess. They don't know what to do about it. They're not willing to repent. They're not willing to turn around. And their life is such a mess. And he said, as I'm looking on from my vantage point, he says, yes, their life is a mess. And he said, it would 
definitely take the grace and power of God to get that mess straightened out. But certainly God could do that for them. In this story here, as we look at this, you know, he took his journey into far country, there wasted his substance with riotous living, but he ends up, once the famine starts, he ends up in the pig pen. And that's a picture or a parallel to what we're talking about here of a ruined life. He is at the bottom of wherever he could go, and especially to the Jews. The Jews thought that pigs were the, they were unclean. Uh, they wouldn't feed pigs. They, you know, feeding pigs was, you were definitely at the bottom of the totem pole. The pig pen represents the ugly, putrid, hideous nature of sin. Right down there with the pigs. And so, you know, therein lies a paradox as we look at this picture that this young man set out to be free and very soon he becomes a slave to his own sinful appetites. There was a man, his name was Reynold III. He was a duke in the 14th century over in Belgium. He had one terrible vice, and that was that he loved to eat and eat and eat. He was extremely obese. Sometime during his reign in the area where he was at, he was a duke, but he, he had rule over a certain area. There was a revolt, and... Um, he was led by his younger brother, who took over his dukedom, I guess that's what you call it. The younger brother captured Reynold and had a prison cell built around him. It had no bars on the windows and no locks on the doors. But Reynold was too large to fit through the normal-sized door. He couldn't get out. And his brother told him, he said, let's see, Younger brother told Reynold when he went on, that when he went on a self-enforced diet and lost enough weight to walk out the door, he would be restored to his wealth and would receive his crown back. And supposedly, according to this story, the, the brother meant it. But every day, the younger brother had sumptuous meals delivered to the prison room, and Reynold continued to eat. History records Reynold died in that prison cell, a prisoner not of lock and key, but a prisoner to his own appetite. It's a sad commentary on someone who doesn't have self-control or the will to turn his life around. Now, he would have been trying to do it on his own strength, but we're talking about spiritual things tonight and, and allowing God to use his power in our lives to help us overcome those sinful appetites, whatever they are. That's how sin ruins you. You become a slave to it. That which had pleasure at first becomes our prison cell at the last. And there's the law of God that says if you sow something, you'll reap it. And that's what was happening to this young man. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall the flesh reap corruption... But he that soweth to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. Okay. He's down in that pig pen, wallowing there with the pigs, so hungry that he wants to eat the pig food and 
He's not allowed to. I'm not quite sure how they kept him from doing that, but not allowed to do that. So what's the steps to returning home to God? First step is he came to his senses. Uh, verse, verse 17, and when he came to himself, when he finally woke up, and the sad part was is that he had to get clear to the bottom before he woke up. And what I'd like for people to do is wake up before they get down to the bottom. But there's something about being only halfway down that we, Satan would try to convince us that we can turn it around by ourselves. We'll figure out how to fix this problem on our own. We're having too much fun to quit now. <clears throat> and we don't wake up. And then too often, once we get to the bottom, Satan tries to, even though we are, we're finally convicted, he puts us into despair, and you know you can never make it back now. But it says this young man came to himself. Came to his senses. That was the turning point of this parable. And God will meet you there. Now in the story, the father didn't meet him until he was part of the way home. But actually, in the spiritual realm, God meets us when we are at that spot where we say, I know I can't do this on my own. I know that there is nothing I can do to, to turn this thing around, and I've got to turn to God for help. You know, and pride will get in your road there just as easily. If, if he had allowed pride to get in his way there, he could have said, I'll never go crawling back to Dad. I won't do it. Uh, my pride won't let me do that. I'd sooner die in this pig pen than, than crawl back to Dad. But fortunately, he came to his senses and he said, Ugh, my hi the hired men at home have it a lot better than this. What am I doing here? He really woke up to his problem. The only way we can approach God is in humility. Notice this, a humble spirit in what he says. In his rationalizing through this problem, he says, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy higher servants. It's my fault. I understand that. I know that the reason I am here is through my own willful, sinful nature. And we have to come to that point also. If we're going to try to go part way and say, okay, I'm going to repent of this sin, but really it was so-and-so's fault that talked me into this. And... And, you know, I was just tempted above that which I could bear and, you know, on and on and on. We just, we try to blame all sorts of other people and situations for the situation we find ourselves in. So the second step on the road back home is to repent. You know, after he realized the situation, he said, I have sinned. I, I'm in trouble here. And in effect, he's making a confession. And he did it over and over again. Um, you know, he did it in his mind, but he also did it once he got home to his father. 
Confession and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And confession always precedes repentance because we have to come to grips with where we are in our spiritual condition. We have to look at that and say, I, it is my fault. I am wrong. And then repent of it. When you confess your sin, you aren't notifying God of what you have done. He already knows that. Confession occurs when you agree with God that your behavior is sin, that you have a problem. And at that same time, if you're repenting truly of it, you'll, you'll display a proper measure of remorse and regret for what you were in. It bothers me when I hear people that have supposedly repented of sin. They've confessed and repented of sin in the past. But years later, they chuckle about that sin and they tell it for a good story. That bugs me. I, I wonder, did you really repent of that? Yeah, you confessed it. But you still think it was funny or you think it had its humorous aspects to it. Is it? Or is it serious business? The circle of confession should be just as large as the circle of the sin. Now, it may include something more than that sometimes. Sometimes we confess to just the ones that we think it's necessary to, and then we, we somehow lose our way again. Sometimes it's important to drive some stakes where some people will know about it and can help to keep us accountable in our life. But definitely that confession should be at least as large as the circle of sin. And can you see a change in this man's attitude from the first of the story? At the first of the story he's saying, give me, give me, give me. I want. Let me have my inheritance. I want my stuff. I want to go. I want to do. And now he's saying, make me as one of your hired servants. Allow me to be a slave, Dad. I want to change. That's what real repentance is. And true repentance will not just leave you in the pig pen. You won't stay there. You'll be making tracks to get out of there. You'll be trying to change your association with whoever. Uh, if you have evil associations, people that are leading you astray, you'll try to get away from that. You'll change your mind about your behavior and then be willing to change your behavior. Jesus, in talking to that woman that was brought to him that was caught in the act of adultery, he said, I'm not condemning you, but go and sin no more. He said, repent of what you've done and change your behavior. Turn around. Do it differently. We're quick to condemn people as, as human beings. We, we have to be careful about that. Jesus said there in talking to that woman, he says, I'm not condemning you. But you need to repent and not do it anymore. The third point in getting back to God is to return 
after he came to his senses and admitted his sin. Let's look at verse 18. He says, I will arise. I will. Those are two very important words that need to be part of a repentance experience. I will do such and such. And again, to drive that stake in such a way that there's some people that can help you be accountable about it. Yes, it's good to kneel in our closet and private and make those promises to God, but sometimes we need the help of brothers and sisters to hold our feet to the fire, so to speak, and say, are you really doing that? Are you staying faithful? But he took that one step towards returning, and it was... It was the beginning of a group of steps as he moved back home where he said, I will, I will go back. I will rise and go to my father and will say unto him. And he goes through what he has already planned through for there. You know, when he left home, he was probably quite the looking character. Probably prancing and strutting down the road and... He had a pile of money in his pocket and it just didn't seem like it would ever run dry. And now he's, I don't know, limping back home. Uh, he's weak from hunger, probably thin because he hasn't been getting enough to eat, dirty. He's a humble character, much different. I'm sure the father had to look a couple times to make sure that was his son coming up the road. But he found that his father had open arms for him, as we discussed the other evening. That God's love for his children never ceases. It's always there and it's always open to those that are ready to confess their sin and repent and turn back to, to him. His father put a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, and shoes on his feet. He killed the fatty calf and they began to celebrate. What a wonderful picture of what God will do for us if you'll come to him. God invites you to return to him. And maybe you say, well, I've never been a Christian, and that's okay. God wants you to make that first step of turning to him and saying, I'm a sinner. I am in need of salvation. I need God in my life. I cannot overcome the futility of sin in my life on my own. Hopefully we find that place. We, we come to that knowledge before it's too late and certainly before we get to the lowest point in our life. Tonight I think most of us have opportunities to have lived in good environments to be raised in good environments. And let's not wait until we find ourselves in a pig pen somewhere if our heart and our life is not right with God.